Hey everyone, before we get into today's show, I want to give a quick shout out to our sponsors, Coinbase Prime and Ledger. Love these companies, genuinely proud to call them sponsors of the show. You're going to be hearing all about them later from me, but now on with the program. All right, everyone, welcome back to another weekly roundup edition of On The Margin. I am joined, as always, by my indubitable co-host, Mr. Mark Yusko. What's going on, Mark? GM, GM. (laughs) GM, GM. I've actually said that, right? All right, so, you know, you've got to open with the reveal. So, in light of the wild action that we've had... I got the Bitcoin roller coaster socks on today. Let's go. Let's go, Mike. So, and you know the thing about a roller coaster, Michael, mm. is it starts, goes up and down and up and down and up and down, and it ends in the same place. Mm. So we're going to talk about that at some point, that there's this this weird vibe to me that feels very 2018, um, which I don't like, but, but we'll get to that. Uh, you know what? Again... We're just in sync here because just like we were talking about for two seconds before this kicked off, I am in London currently. I've been in Lisbon for the last week. I went to Solana Breakpoint. Got some takeaways uh, before we get into our stories here. First of all, I got to say the organizers of this event crushed it. And the Solana ecosystem, you know, I kind of went there. I wanted to see how real is this ecosystem? What does the developer community look like? Are people building real projects? I came away very solidly with two takeaways, which was one, this is a real ecosystem. There is a differentiated community here. This is going to survive multiple cycles. And I really think that Solana is here to stay. But I also firmly came away with, we are nearing the top. <laughs> we, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. We're nearing yeah. the top, baby. Yeah. Well, look, the fact that I just said GM uh, <laughs> means, you know, we, we definitely, because it didn't start with old guys like me. So, you know, that there's a token called GM that I'm. Yeah. Michael, I was going down like, that rabbit hole last night. And uh, there's actually multiple. There's there's, really? there's there's knockoffs. There's there's GM GMC. I mean, th- there's there's multiple attempts to try to uh, yeah. capitalize on this movement. So just to like, so there, there were a couple projects. I mean, one of the things that I think is pretty interesting about the Solana ecosystem, it's built on you know the developing language. They use something called Rust, right? And there's a very different mm-hmm. language than Solidity. Over, overall, an important thing that I think I missed from the Solana ecosystem is their entire, their DeFi thing is based on a central limit order book as opposed to the AMM model that you have in ETH. Um, it's just, it's more efficient. It's more, uh, you know, price efficient as well. So you've got a lot of really interesting financial products being built in that ecosystem that wouldn't be as possible in the ETH ecosystem. But yep. I will say what gave me 2017, 2018 vibes is talk to someone building OnlyFans on Solana, talk to yeah. someone building Uber on Solana, and, you know, yeah. it's not really worth engaging and being it's a, the third guy I talked to at the conference. I was like, where do you work? He's like, I'm just in dog coins. So, you know. Absolutely. Look, I mean, the the number of people who who believe that the meme coin thing is real somehow mm-hmm. is pretty alarming. Mm-hmm. And, and and look, there's there's no there's no debating the fact that money has flowed into these things, right? And the price has risen and and that makes everybody feel good. But there is this interesting challenge. And we saw it, we talked a little bit about this last week is, well, if there's one wallet that controls, you know, billions, what happens if they sell? It's like, what happens if Elon Musk sells a bunch of his stock? The price goes down. So um, it's interesting. And I, I, I agree with you. If we just focus on the ecosystem, it's amazing. 
you know, we are big owners of Solana, as we've talked about, and we're happy about yeah. it. Uh, it's going to be a huge winner in our fund. But um, I do worry that, as you said, this is one of, of many, many, many kind of examples of excessive behaviors that usually mean the speculative frenzy is nearing uh, a temporary, because it's, it's only a temporary end. It's like, it's why I'm wearing the roller coaster socks, right? It's not that we aren't higher today than we were in 2017 or 2013 or 2009, mm -hmm. but there are these cycles and the down of the roller coaster ride can be super fun or super scary, depending yeah. on your tolerance. I'm with you. And I, I really don't mean this to come across as a bearish. I'm, by the way, I, I don't think this run is over. Um, I, I, I really don't. I, but what I do think, there were just some signs that were kind of initial worrying signs to me. And two of them, again, that I'll, that I'll just point out and flag is one, you know, just the speed of, at which VC deals. I, my heart went out to you, Mark. I was, you know, I was listening to these people. It's like you get on a call, you know, seed deals being valued at $40 million. If you don't commit on the phone, yeah. you're just not getting in. And it doesn't even matter who you are, right? People aren't returning A16Z's emails. You know, that's, that's the phrase. And someone tweeted a little while ago. Remember when Bitcoin did that sell off in May? And some, some yeah. guy, some Fintwit guy came out and said, look, this definitely isn't the bottom because, or this isn't the top because at the top, no one is worried. No one's asking, is this the top or not? Correct. And I have to say, I went to a bunch of parties and, you know, I was kind of saying, oh, this feels a little bit, uh, you know, excitable. And people were saying, well, don't you believe in the super cycle thesis? And I was like, oh man. Hey, there you go. No, you, yeah, look, um, it, Michael, I was walking around Silicon Valley back in, mm -hmm. in 2000 uh, during the last, you know, crazy wave of, of technology bubbles and was actually sitting in the lobby of a, a VC firm mm -hmm. and, you know, waiting our turn, right? And uh, to beg for capacity <laughs> and phone rings and the assistant answered it and says, um, yeah, uh-huh, uh-huh. Well, um, we don't talk to anybody um, west of, I mean, east of California. So I'm sorry. And hung up. The receptionist was vetting calls based on physical location. And, and that's yeah. just how crazy it was. There was just so much to do. And, you know, I don't know if I told the story to people before, but, you know, I met with this, this one guy and, and I was public and I actually was uh, in, I don't know, Forbes or Fortune, it doesn't really matter which one, uh, saying that, look, a billion dollars for venture capital in 2000, not in crazy devalued money today, but a billion dollars for a venture capital fund in 2000 was, was crazy and it wasn't going to work. And I had this venture capitalist come to North Carolina. He's like, well, Mark, you know, I'm sick of you talking about, actually didn't call me Mark, he's called Yusko. Yusko, I'm sick of you talking about, you know, a billion dollars is too much. You know, we're not raising a billion dollars. I said, Jonathan, 960 million is a billion, dude. Come on. And he's like, well, look, I've, I've done the math. And at, at 800 million, I make more off management fees than carry. And let's face it, this is a game of enriching the general partner, not the limited partner. Mm -hmm. My partner looks at me and says, did he just say that out loud? <laughs> and I'm like, it's one thing to think it, but geez, really? And so, you know, needless to say, we didn't invest. Now he tells a different story. I, I've heard Pete tells you, he kicked me out of his fund. Mm -hmm. like, good. So I, and I'm tell a bad story on myself. I might've done a little happy dance just a little one, when that fund went down 85%. Because I felt badly for the LPs, of which I'm happy not to be one, 
But yeah. I just the, the the arrogance at these peaks is palpable, right? It's absolutely palpable. And you're right. It's it's about commanding valuations for nothing. I mean, literally for an idea. It's about not returning phone calls and and uh, so I don't know. We'll see. It is it is what it is. And you know, it, this is a, it's a stressful time, honestly, to have a lot of money or be a market participant because look. Uh, to, to, to be totally, you know, to caveat this, I haven't taken any risk off the table. I'm here saying right. I think this is right. this feels very toppy, but I mean, I, I think it could do another four x. I, I just have no idea. Um, I mean, my my personal target for this cycle has been a ten trillion dollar market cap. We're still not there. What I am just saying is you're starting to see early warning signs that tend to accompany these peaks. So I have no special insight. This is just me thinking out loud and giving honest, you know. Feedback from no, no, like I said, it, it, again, back to the socks, right, is um, from my friends at Mount Socks, by the way. Um, the, the reality is this feels a whole lot to me like November 2018. And if you remember that period, you know, we had this kind of floor at right, 6,500 bucks and we kept trying to bounce over it and every pump had a dump pump dump pump and, and just kept hitting this floor of 6500 bucks and nobody and and I, I I thought it was nobody and someone said no Travis Kling actually wrote about it and said that this was going to dump one more time and sure enough you know we dumped all the way to 3200 now my favorite part and I just tweeted this out the other day uh, you know hashtag don't get shift uh, Peter Schiff at 3,800 after the first drop down in November uh, basically said, okay, I told you this is going to zero. Again, he said that. Um, and literally it was almost at, at the generational low, uh, which was you know December 4th or something at, at 3,200. But I, I actually am going to ping Travis later on today and see, because I, I, we've had this you know, on the you know, futures announcement pumped to 65 and then dumped. And then we pumped to 68 the other day and then we dumped. And then we pumped to 65 yesterday and dumped. And, and we've been hitting this, this flat line around 60,000. And I don't know, there, there feels like an air gap back to kind of January, February levels, which would be an ugly, ugly thing. Now again, I'm not predicting that. I'm not saying that's going to happen. And there are a lot of reasons why it might not, but we are late in the cycle, right? If we yeah. are following the four-year cycle, we are late. And whether we are, you know, 30 or 60 days away from the end, don't know. But, you know, we're past the first cycle, the 17 cycle. Um, we're not past the 13 cycle. That's like, 60 days from now so i don't know we'll, we'll see but um we'll see i i have no special insight you i mean you've been a market participant for so much longer than i have i trust your instincts i think i mean look could be 30 days could be a year i have no idea um i guess we'll just have to <laughs> stay tuned all right let's yeah. switch it over to some of these charts here um now we're going to start uh with a series of charts uh put together by uh, our mutual friend, Lynn Alden, uh, who is just so great. Love, uh, and have, love, love, love. She is the best. We actually had her on the podcast this week with Yuri and yeah. Timmer uh, of Fidelity. 
but looking at a couple of different charts here about inflation. So obviously we got to talk about the 6.2% CPI print that happened in uh, October. You know, the big thing that she's charting here, she's, we're looking at uh, CPI and we're also matching it up, up against the three-month Treasury bill uh, interest rate, which is extremely low. And you can see that there's just a tremendous gap, right, in between what CPI is doing and what uh, interest rates are doing. And she kind of compared it to two different periods of time, which is the 1940s and the 1970s. The big difference here is that on the left, you're looking at a chart of the 1940s, for those of you who aren't following with the charts. And you can see the CPI is, is you know, really spiking, but interest rates are kind of held firm at an extremely low level. This is what we refer to as financial repression, right? So there's a huge gap in between interest rates and what's going on in CPI. Basically, bondholders get annihilated in this, in this instance. Then you're looking at the right, and you're looking at the 1970s, and actually it's very different because what happened is as uh, CPI went up, interest rates followed it. And around 1980, we had Paul Volcker. He famously fought inflation, jacked interest rates up to about 18%. So even though you had inflation in both of those scenarios, very, very different uh, environments. And again, she is, again, this is closing out Lynn Alden's thoughts here, but this is the Fed fund effective rate uh, compared to CPI. And this is the largest gap you know, that we had since the 1940s. So I think my takeaway here is that we are nearing extreme territory. Mark, what do you think about when you look at these kind of three charts in, in conjunction with one another? Yeah, look, I, I, as always, you know, great analysis. And, you know, normally, you know, I'm, again, I have a hashtag for everything, but I have a hashtag for this, you know, alligator jaws always close. <laughs> uh, so you'd look at this first one and, and you would say, oh, has to close. Mm. But I don't think so. And there's there's two reasons. One, uh, I, I do think that this, this CPI blip is simply measuring the devaluation of the currency. You know, I tweeted about this this morning. This, this is not inflation. I mean, this is a all-out devaluation destruction of Western currencies. U.S., Europe, and Japan all simultaneously race to the bottom. And so that's, that's the first thing. Second is... Uh, what this shows is the death of normal in uh, after the global financial crisis, right? It's over, right? The, the Fed has lost control. You know, I used to talk about, you know, quote unquote, Fed in the box. Uh, and they're in the box and the box is locked and they ain't getting out. They are not Houdini. Uh, there is zero chance they can raise rates. Zero, right? Because the, the world can't afford it. People are drowning in debt. Governments are drowning in debt. Individuals are drowning in debt. Businesses are drowning in debt. And it was like, oh no, they have all this cash. I'm like, yeah, because they have debt that they issued to buy back stock to enrich the the 1%. And so I just, I worry that people uh, are thinking this is an inflationary period like the 70s. And I think what, what we're going to see is it's it's really more like a deflationary period of the 30s and 40s and you know we're still in recession right the recession has not been called um and what happened in the 1930s was they took interest rates down to zero this financial repression that you talked about michael and they tried to stimulate the economy with with free money and instead nobody took the money because there was no demand and there were no jobs and and they basically turned a garden variety recession into the Great Depression. You know, if you go back to the 30s and 40s, it was also uh, there was a big spike in, in oil and there was a big spike in food. And those spikes 
in commodity prices presage uh, these these contractions in economic activity. And you know, I think you you've talked about Russell Clark's um, presentation on on food inflation that he did you know 14 15 months ago. Which basically predicted all of this, right? Said every all this stuff was going to happen, and now it's been exacerbated by the nat gas problem, which is going to increase fertilizer prices, which is going to decrease the planting of corn, which is going to decrease the feed for hogs, which is going to, and the the ripple effect of that is is going to be continued pressure on the things that the people need to live, and financial assets are going to continue to spike, and get continue to get this wealth divide. Yeah, I have a question for you. Did you see one thing that was really surprising to me that I just didn't understand for the life of me, couldn't get a good explanation for this, was on the day that that CPI print, 6.2% in October, became public, the dollar actually spiked, which made no sense to me. I, I didn't understand what's going on there at all. Uh, do, do you have any theories on why that might be? Well, a couple things. So one, the dollar that we always talk about right, mm -hmm. is DXY. And right. DXY is basically 60% euro, 30-something uh, percent yen, and then a smattering of other stuff. So it's really just the relative attractiveness of the, of the big three. And, and I talk about this, if you look over the last 10 years, uh, it was always coordinated around WEF. Uh, so you know, all the central banks would gather in, in Switzerland, and they would decide. I think I think they probably did, right? Ink and bink a bottle of ink, the cork fell out and you stink. I really think they did that and said, okay, you're in the hot box. Your currency has to uh, appreciate so the rest of us can devalue um, so that we can save our economies. And I think, you know, if, if you look, Europe's in the worst shape, right? In terms of uh, economic depression, you know, as, as somebody said, you know, Europe uh, is becoming a fine open air museum. Um, I mean, just really tough for them to, to, be, I know, I don't know if you've driven around, you know, Italy, like I, I was with my son a couple of years ago, driving around Italy and, and, you know, buildings boarded up and no young people. I mean, crazy, crazy sad. It was like driving around. I took my mother-in-law back to where she grew up in Kankakee, Illinois and in Hobart, Indiana a couple weeks ago. So sad. I mean, mm. bombed out buildings, literally things that have burned, but didn't burn to the ground and, and just left for dead and businesses shuttered and, and houses for sale and no bids, right? In Chapel Hill, House Coast Australia, you got 47 bids. And um, so I just, I think that's, I think that's what it is. And that's, that's a long explanation, but it, the DXY is, is an imperfect instrument for valuation of the dollar relative because the, the currency that's been the strongest over the last uh, 20 months, renminbi. Hmm. Interest. Because remember, a strong currency is a sign of a strong economy. So if you, if you compared China, US, Europe, and Japan, Japan's been mired in deflationary depression for, you know, 30 plus years, not getting out of it anytime soon. Demographics are a problem. Debt, massive problem. So they have no chance to stimulate inflation or economic growth because they just don't have enough people, young people. Uh, Europe, right behind them, uh, nine years behind them demographically, and, and they're looking uglier and uglier all the time. And now with the, the lockdown nonsense, and they're just, just shooting themselves, not in the foot, but literally like in the you know femoral artery, uh, right. trying to bleed out. And, and so the U.S. is in, in second or I guess top of the bad heap. But China, you know, despite all the rhetoric 
and the Cold War 2.0 stuff uh, got a strong currency, uh, have stronger growth by orders of magnitude stronger. Now, yes, they have problems with energy shortages and, and high oil prices, but uh, I don't know. So that's a long explanation of DXY. No, it's it's a good explanation. And, you know, I did tweet this out and someone said, um, I mean, because yields did spike as well. So that, that has, you know, you know, the effect of dragging foreign investment into the dollar as well. You know, one other thing I wanted to, I don't know if you saw this, but Russell Clark actually shut down his uh, fund. And, and uh, Jim Bialka had this great tweet about it, which is, I'm not saying that this is near a top, but these are the type of things that actually happen at the top. And Russell Clark is just an extremely thoughtful guy and a great money manager. So, you know, take that. Well, Michael, for- I'll, I'll give you a second one for that, right? And yeah. I would say, if I hear something once, I remember it. If I hear it twice, I write it down. If I hear it three times, I do something about it. So Russell Clark, one of the great short sellers of all time. Uh, I mean, you know, he's not Mark Cahotes, but but he's definitely one of the great short sellers of all time. Uh, so shutting down. Uh, two was talking to a very good friend uh, who had, past tense, a very large and very successful hedge fund um, over a 20-year period. And he has shut down and converted to a family office. And I was talking to him the other day and he said, look, it, it just got to the point where shorting was impossible, mm-hmm. right? In an age of, of algos and HFTs, it just became impossible. And the ability to gain an edge there and, and hold your positions vanished. So I said, I, I'd, I'd much rather focus on where the opportunity is, which is, uh, what Tiger Global has done, right? Turned into a private yep. equity firm. What Co2 has done, turned into a private equity or venture capital, growth equity, growth equity. Uh, I said, that's what I'm doing with my family office. I'm doing late stage private. I'm doing, you know, a few tech stocks long. And uh, that's that's where we are. And, and look, we printed uh, $4 trillion. I always pause for effect when I say the word trillion. Yeah, a trillion is a dollar every second for 31,710 years. So four of those babies. And the crazy stat is all of it ended up in four stocks. Google went up by a trillion dollars. Apple went up by a trillion and a half dollars. Facebook went up by close to a trillion dollars. And Amazon went up by a trillion. So maybe Microsoft, maybe it's five stocks. And Mm -hmm. there's no... No chance, zero chance that those companies, and we can throw Tesla in here too, created value equivalent to that amount, right? Not possible. There's not enough profits and, and uh, you know, just it's not, not there. Uh, and I've said all the time, right? I mean, Tesla doesn't make money. So at, at some point you have to return money to shareholders like Amazon eventually did. But, you know, for years, they didn't make money either, but uh, at least they were generating cash flow. You know, Tesla doesn't generate cash flow. They have to borrow money from the markets and then incinerate it, their cash incineration engine. But I don't know. I I do worry that we've entered a world, we talked about the dog coins. Who would buy an asset just because other people are buying that asset that has no utility? Right? There's no development activity. There's no use case. Um, 
you know, merchants aren't going to start accepting Doge as payment. There's not. So, yeah. you know, that is that is the definition of mania, right? You want to you want to call crypto tulips? You can point right there. Bitcoin, not tulips. Ethereum, not tulips. Solana, not tulips. Doge, tulips. Shiba Inu, tulips. Well, this is a true. St- I mean, so Jason and I, so we're in London right now. We got dinner with an old friend of ours who's working as a financial advisor, and we were talking about crypto. And just like many of these conversations do, I, I think it's just it's really hard to have what feels like an unemotional conversation or rational conversation. And it's hard because I've, I've been in the space for a long time. You know, we started Blockworks with the idea of educating people and bringing people in. It's really hard to bring in a new group of people. And what it eventually came down to for him was. Well, you know, what are you going to tell me? Anyone can just create anything. Look at Shiba Inu. Is people going to use that as payments? And you try to walk them through the fact that people, I think the biggest haters of Shiba Inu honestly come from within the crypto industry because it undermines a lot of what we're trying to do. But it just doesn't, it just doesn't resonate. And I'll actually skip ahead to something here, which is, yeah, you can look at speculation in crypto, but it's, it's happening in the stock market as well. So we're looking right here at single stock uh, daily notional traded volume, uh, and it's we're at an all-time high. Right, So this is in the spot market for stocks right now. Obviously, if you look at what's going on with call options, this chart comes to us from Jim Bianco, Bianco Research. We're again, not quite at an all-time high when mean stock mania was going on back in January of this year, but we are very close. And it's actually even worse than that because... Uh, this chart comes to us from uh, CBOE and Deutsche Bank, but you're looking at the uh, volumes of single stock options and you're, they've broken it out between calls and puts. And we're at an all-time high in terms of volume for both, but it's actually skewed more towards calls. So the market is going very long here. I, I mean, yeah, the, the, the amount of speculation has just kind of gone out of control. And you know, even going back to this idea that we're at the top you know, in crypto, I'm also just not even really sure what else I would put my money into right now because yeah. nothing feels solid and safe. And I, I think that is, I think that is a, a, an issue that a lot of people are wrestling with right now. Well, look, what, what the last three charts are all about is money illusion and gamification of trading, right? This is not investing. This is gambling. This is degenerate gambling. You know, this is people literally locked in their homes, literally, right? Not not physically, but but basically said, don't leave your house. And so you can't watch sports because there are no sports and you can't go to Vegas because you can't go to Vegas. And so, oh, and by the way, here's some money. Here's 1200 bucks. And everybody's like, wait a minute. If, if all of us have 1200 bucks and we all buy something, then the price will go up and then we can all buy some more. And and look, that is an absolutely valid, as, as we've seen in many examples, absolutely valid strategy until it's not. And when it ends is when the liquidity dries up. And so, yes, printing, you know, trillions and trillions, literally, you know, 10, I think maybe 11 trillion now across all the global central banks uh, since 2020. Um, that has led to an expansion of all assets, all of them, including crypto. But in the stock market, it's worse, I believe, because 
there you don't have the growth. You don't have the development. I mean, I, I pick on Apple all the time, right? I mean, Apple's uh, earnings were roughly the same. Their actual earnings, actual income was roughly the same as 2015, 16 uh, in the last year. But their earnings per share went up because they bought back stock and, and did the voodoo to make it, make it look like they were growing. But they're not growing. And so why do you pay a growth stock multiple for a company that's not growing? At least an ecosystem like Solana or an ecosystem like Ethereum, where the cash flow generation is like this, or Axie Infinity, my favorite thing, right? Which the cash flow is, you know, they passed Fortnite. I mean, that's real cash generative business that is changing the world, literally changing people's lives. Um, but, but sitting in your apartment, in your pajamas, gambling on meme stocks is not investing, right? It's fine. It's a game. It's like literally like playing a video game and number go up uh, mentality is it, it can go until the liquidity stops. So here's the thing. 18 months ago, 91% of central banks around the world were cutting rates. Okay. Today, that number's down to 70. So close to a third of uh, banks around the world are not only not easing, they're actually tightening. They're taking the punch bowl away. And we've seen the, the China credit impulse. That is just going downhill. They are, they're right, right. pulling in liquidity to try to stop the, the bubble. And when that liquidity ebbs, then we will see who's swimming naked. And there's a whole bunch of stuff I'm not going to be able to unsee. I don't really want to see it. I agree with you. And I mean, this chart, uh, you know, this comes to us from Urian Timmerer, who's just, man, the charts this guy produces are so great. Also a guest on this week's podcast. But when you're looking at earnings and valuation together across just the historical price of the S&P from 1980 until today. So that black line that you're seeing is actually what the S&P traded at. The band is the valuations, right? All the way from a 10x PE all the way up to a 24 and when the black line is closer to the top of the band, that we're in a, a period of very rich valuation. And when it goes down to the bottom of the band, that's when valuation is kind of going down. You can see where we are now. We're very, very rich, richly valued in terms of the S&P 500. And if you look, take a look at this slide, which is global earnings growth, you know, you know, Urian's, Urian's takeaway from this chart is that we're kind of peaking out in terms of earnings. And if anything, it looks like there's going to be a turnover from here. So there are really two ways that you can get growth in the S&P 500. It's from earnings growth or it's from valuation. And it kind of looks like we're topping out on both. Yeah, Michael, this is a very, very famous chart, right? Mm -hmm. in, in technical uh, analysis, this is a really important chart. It's called the puking brontosaurus pattern. <laughs> is that true? No, I just made that up. Um, <laughs> but I made it up. I made it up actually in, in 2000 nine uh all right no 2008 uh 2008 because we had the same the same pattern and look if you if you create and this is this is beautiful right from the bottom right we injected cash into everything and you created this literally vertical i mean companies don't grow vertically they just mm -hmm. don't 
And earnings don't grow vertically, but it's a base effect, right? If, you know, I, I said, I think I said on one of the things the other day that, that I watched, you know, the, the CEO of, of AMC, which I'm a huge fan. I, I think he is awesome. And he said, look, 99.99% of our revenue vanished in one week in March of 2000, right? We were close to bankruptcy five different times. Um, so when you start from 0.01 and, and you go to 0.1, that's a big growth rate. If you go to 10% of your revenue, oh my gosh, look how much we're growing. And so people just can't do math. If you drew a, you know, 25, 30 degree line through that, it's a beautiful trend, right? And, and that's normal, right? Stocks should go up on average about 6% real over time because they do grow and companies form and new businesses come in, but they don't go vertical. And, and that, that vertical had to end unless everybody just kept printing money. And what, what people have realized is there, there does come a point you know, tipping point, right? Uh, in fact, you probably see Malcolm Gladwell's book on the shelf back there. But uh, you, you get to a point where you can't print more because true hyperinflation, like like true loss of control, total devaluation of the currency happens. That happened in Venezuela recently. It happened in Zimbabwe, you know, a decade ago. And that... You know, I'm not saying we're in Weimar, but that type of vertical move is is a loss of control, right? It's a loss of control of the valuation of your currency because you just created so much of it and it's not sustainable. And, you know, the, the all the estimates, right, for, for whether it's earnings growth, whether it's GDP growth, whether it's, you know, any type of growth for 2022, are all cratering. They're all cratering. And, you know, it's just, it's, it, it's like, I would say it's like a bouncing ball bounce or it's like a ball bouncing down a set of stairs. Each bounce is higher, just kinetic energy, but the end of the trip is a bad place. So now that we've crested, I, I think the, the bounce down the set of stairs is going to be unpleasant. Howdy everyone. This episode is brought to you by Coinbase Prime, the leading prime brokerage solution for all things digital assets, providing secure custody, trading, and financing to an institutional suite of clients. On the retail side of things, I am more than happy to make this endorsement because I have been a customer of Coinbase since the day that I got into crypto. I still keep the vast majority of my assets there, actually, and I do it for one reason and one reason alone, so that I can sleep easy at night knowing that my funds are safe. It's the same reason when family or friends ask me, where should I buy my first Bitcoin? I direct them to Coinbase. And now, finally, when institutions are starting to ask, what's the most safe infrastructure to use? I only point them in one direction, to Coinbase Prime. And the reason that I do that is because it is peace of mind. When it comes to security, Everything is top of the line on this platform, and it's a white glove experience to boot. They've been securing client assets at scale for eight years, which as of Q2 of this year is $180 billion. They have an industry-leading insurance policy, and they're audited by Blue Chip auditors so that you can sleep easy at night too. So stop listening to me, click the link at this bottom of this episode, and go check them out for yourself. And when you get there, tell them that I sent you because I love to get credit. When it comes to crypto, security and custody is paramount. 
Introducing this episode's sponsor, Ledger, your secure gateway to buy, exchange, and grow your crypto assets. I know I've got a smart audience, so I'm assuming slash hoping that most of you already have your Ledger hardware wallet, but just in case you don't, this is how I think about it. I wouldn't get into a car if I couldn't wear a seatbelt, and I don't operate in crypto unless I can do it for my Ledger hardware wallet. Crypto is really exciting, but it is still the Wild West. There are lots of risks, and Ledger is the easiest way to make sure that you are still protected. And the best part about Ledger is that you don't need to make any trade-offs between security of your funds and utility of your assets because Ledger has Ledger Live, which is a software that syncs right up to your Ledger hardware wallet, and you can do anything that you'd want to do with your crypto assets. You can easily send and receive, you can buy and exchange, and you can get access to staking. And they've actually started to aggregate some of the best DeFi apps and services out there. Two of my favorites, Paraswap, a decentralized aggregator, and they've got Lido for staking. And stay tuned, I'm going to keep you guys updated. They've got some really cool services uh, coming out soon. Aave, Compound, and One Inch among them. So if you take one thing away from this, guys, please, please, please make sure that you're protected in this space. Get yourself a Ledger hardware wallet today and start using the Ledger Live app. Click the link at the bottom of this episode. Thank me later. And the one thing I would add here, and I actually want to return to this idea of money illusion and especially the idea of leverage being what's needed to create bubbles. Because um, I haven't, you know, there's a chart out there of, of FINRA margin leverage. And the last time I looked at it was about a month ago. I said all-time highs. I'd be curious, probably look after this and see where we're at right now. But the big question here as well is how much leverage is out there and what's the political will to keep the market going higher? I think one of the big problems of the, the last 18 months or so is that it's kind of laid bare the way markets really work. And people are starting to say, hey, this stuff isn't really fair. So one, you know, one question I actually asked Lynn and Urian earlier this week was there are kind of there's this there's this conflicting narrative around inflation. You hear some people talk about this idea that, well, when there's inflation, actually it's kind of a shift from capital to labor, overall incomes go up and asset prices go down. It has this leveling effect. And then you also talk to some people who, you know, have gone through inflation and say, actually, that's really a malfunction of the economy. That's not what anyone wants. Uh, and it's a bad thing overall. And usually, as, as is the case in any narrative, uh, that's oversimplified. And Lynn had a really, really great explanation about how the explanation for this doesn't belong on Twitter. And it really depends on the different type of inflation. But her overall explanation for what happens when there's an inflationary period is it tends to benefit debtors and it's not good for creditors. So Morgan Housel had this great tweet of there are conflicting debt narratives going along. So actually, this what we're looking at this chart on the left here is household debt service payments as a percentage of disposable income. So this looks very low historically. And actually, you can see that he, he kind of put this up uh, against a an article that came out in something like Business Insider. I don't think it was them, but it's a, a media outlet like them and basically saying Americans are in more debt than ever. And, you know, you can see from this period on the right, actually, that, you know, it actually looks like debt holdings are at all-time lows for households. So you can see the cash balance going up, uh, the debt going down, the value of equity going up. So that actually looks like Americans are generally in a pretty good position. Um, this chart actually got responded to, shoot, I'm going to, Eugene something. Uh, Eugene, I'll give you credit in the show notes. But he actually pointed out to me that if you look at it by income, it it gives you it gives you a very... Or, um, you know, different demographics of income. So we're looking at the debt service ratios, the top 5% and the tw top 20% and the bottom 80%. It's a very, very different chart. So if you look at the top five and top 20% of earners, you know, you're, it's, you're, they're in a much, much better position in terms of their debt service ratios than, you know, the bottom 
which is around, you know, it's like 20% or something. It's very, very high. Although it does look like it's trending down. So I guess my question to you is when I look at this chart and then when I think about Lynn's explanation for who inflation benefits, if it benefits debtors, it actually kind of looks like this would be, I mean, it's, it's good for no one, right? Everyone kind of is in a worse off financial position, but relatively it actually looks like the bottom 80% if they tend to be more indebted would benefit from an inflationary. I know that's a weird thing to no, say. No, no. Okay. It, it's, it's, it's again, really good analysis, but I, I think that the, the, the subtle thing that's missing is asset ownership. Right. The reason debt is good when you're wealthy is you don't have revolving debt. You don't have consumer debt, you know, credit card debt. You have mortgage debt. You have second home debt. You have uh, rental income debt. You have business debt, you know, private business debt. And what you want to do, right? And, and look, the elite got the memo. You know, in 1975, they, they, they got the memo, uh, buy up as many assets as you can and lever them like crazy. And 10 years ago in the global financial crisis, the, the banksters propagated that memo writ large, right? And then with the tax act that, that you know, Congress passed uh, during the Trump presidency, the, the businesses got the memo. So, so asset, you know, ownership, you should lever up, right? By appreciating assets and lever the shit out of them, okay? The problem for the, the bottom 80%, they don't own any assets. They don't own mm. stocks. They're not margining their stocks. They're oh. not, you know, they're not, you know, putting a mortgage on their second house. They don't even have a house in many cases. They're paying rent. And so their debt is debt that is taking money off the table, literally, that would go for food, medicine, you know, uh, medical procedures. And they are half a paycheck. It used to be one paycheck, but they're half a paycheck away from bankruptcy. And this is why there's all the call for UBI and, you know, give people free money. I'm like, again, bad plan. I mean, look, anytime governments allocate assets, it's just bad. They're horrible at allocating assets. We do not want governments to take assets from people and try that it, they're just bad at it. And so what we want is to encourage innovation and wealth creation and inclusion. Yes, we should have a social safety net. I'm all about that. Um, but you know, creating dependency is bad. And again, that's part of the dictator playbook. What you want is a scared, isolated, poor, okay, weak populace that depends on you, the beneficent governors, to give them sustenance in exchange for votes. And that is every dictatorship in the history of mankind. And it is what all, <laughs> crazy as it sounds, all of these Western democracies are trending towards. And it's very scary. And, and what's happening in the United States right now is, is very, very scary. Australia, off the charts. I mean, I, I saw this thing this morning, Michael. They issued, and I'll tweet about it later, but they issued a proclamation that vaccinated people are allowed to stand up 
and consume alcohol in the bar. But if you're unvaccinated, you must sit down to consume alcohol. What the hell? I mean, what on what planet is there any logic to that mm. other than to separate classes of people, the people who obey the government and the people who defy the government? Oh, my God. I mean, next, are people going to watch and you just shoot all the people who are sitting down? Is that is that what happens? Yeah. I, you know, again, to just to give the other side of this view, I, I think so. I was listening to a podcast, a very popular podcast with these guys who, who I'd kind of describe as Web 2 pioneers. And on the one hand, I agree with this argument, right? There's this kind of line of, of reasoning, which is we should be, instead of what governments are doing right now, which is prohibiting progress or saying that we should tax unrealized gains of billionaires, which, by the way, I, I strongly disagree with. But they're saying that overall, that's the wrong point of view. And I, I do agree with that. But what they're also saying is, you know, the internet gave rise to this, you know, you now have more ability to get a high income paying job. It should be leveling the playing field, et cetera. And that's where I actually really disagree with them because you can make logical arguments all you want that the internet should be leveling the playing field. Just look at the numbers. It's not. And you can blame it on the internet. You can blame it on monetary policy, whatever it is. Everything, if you're a listener of the show, I just draw everything back to wealth inequality because the most consistent data point throughout history is that when wealth inequality gets gigantic, revolutions happen or wealth redistributions happen, right? It's one of the two. And I'm kind of, you know, I'm adjusting my view a little bit and I'm saying, I think actually when the free market fails, you do need government to step in and facilitate that redistribution. What do you, what do you think about that point? Because otherwise, if it's not led by the government, how do we fix that problem? Wealth and income inequality, I, I, I've said this over and over, right, are the absolute direct result of the plan, you know fomented in 1913 with the creation of the Fed to use the devaluation of the currency. Don't call it inflation. It is a systematic devaluation of the currency to rob the wealth from the masses and siphon it up to the, to the rich through asset ownership. That's exactly what this is. And so this idea that um, somehow we can fix that by the government confiscating it and redistributing it I think is totally wrong, right? I mean, you, you can use the internet to get a better job, right? There are more jobs today than at any time in human history, right? Fact. And every time people worry about the jobs that are gonna get nuked, like North Carolina where I live, right? All the textile manufacturing jobs got nuked and sent to China. And I remember Trump coming down here and saying you know, to this woman, I'm gonna get your job back. Like, no, you're not. That, that job's never coming back. Now, we could, enroll her in community college, teach her to code Python, and then she could have a job in the new economy, or she could go work in a service business to you know, become a massage therapist or physical therapist, or go back and become a nurse practitioner or, or whatever. Lots of things you could do, because the healthcare needs are, are gonna be massive, but there's no chance that manufacturing job is coming back. And so the progress continues, and the but this idea that, that governments will somehow collect money and distribute it equitably and fairly, there's just no record of that in history. 
happening because what governments do is they enrich themselves. And you can look at the lobbying. You can look at the, you know, our senators, right? Our senators are multimillionaires, sometimes centimillionaires. How, how can that be? I mean, they don't make that much money, right? Except in the other things that they get compensated, like, you know, insider trading, which is legal for them. So it's a, it's a long rambling point, but I am absolutely of the view that, you know, nothing creates more value than entrepreneurship, innovation, and business formation. And anything that we do to inhibit that, right? Paying people to stay at home inhibits the entrepreneurial spirit. It inhibits, right, the creative spirit. It inhibits the, you know, wealth creation engine that is the formation of small business. And so not having enough workers at a business so that business goes out of business is bad for the masses, but who's it good for? It's really good for the people at the top because it creates more dependence on the dictators. And, and this is a, it's a very subtle, but very sinister. Now last time was sinister Saturday, but um, you know, this is, this, I don't know. So I, what I love about where I've gone now, right, into this Web3, like I went to a Web3 meetup the other night here in Chapel Hill, and it was awesome. I mean, it was just awesome. The energy, the vibrance, the, and, and what was cool about it is I thought I was going to be the oldest guy there, and I actually wasn't, and that was very cool. So it wasn't just a bunch of crypto kids. This was, and, and I don't mean crypto kids in a derogatory fashion, I just mean that people younger than me, who I admire for their energy, their enthusiasm, their brilliance. You know, I, I tweeted about this last night, that the migration of talent, I mean, I was liking, I'm not following, I was following so many people last night, my finger got tired. I was, I was literally overwhelmed at the number of people I just wanted to go hang out with and, and go talk to because they're just so brilliant and doing such amazing things. And that's what I mean by crypto kids. I mean it in a loving, inclusive, not in, in a derogatory mean. Um, I'm not a kid. I feel like a kid. I act like a kid, but I'm not a kid. Um, but it was, it was amazing. And so the, and, and they all talked about, we want to make, you know, the research triangle, not the old research triangle with IBM and the defense department, but we want it to be web three triangle. Actually I have a hashtag web three triangle. And they said, we, we can, we can bring people here because we have higher quality of life than the taxes in California. I'm like, yes, we actually do. So, um, all of that, I believe leads to the compression of this craziness. Like part of the reason we have craziness and in, in wealth and income inequality is because we have, you know, fudged the rules for revenue recognition, for software as a service, for stock option compensation, not being an expense. Are, are you joking? I mean, if money goes out to people, that is an expense. And, and this idea that, you know, some, some people in, in the government are like, well, you know, there's no cost for the infrastructure bill. Like, what do you mean there's no cost? It has zero cost. Like, no, that's just not even remotely true. So this is very Orwellian, 1984-ish kind of, you know, bad is good and up is down is up. No, the reality is um, the best solution for 
society is entrepreneurship, business formation, education, um, all the things that we used to do really, really well, and we haven't, you know, changed with the times. Um, I mean, I, just one little side thing, and then I'll let, I'll let you back, is education, right? Our education system is still using 100-year-old technology, right? We set up the original education system to train people how to be factory workers, right? Stand in your square, don't, you know, question authority, memorize these facts, you know, don't talk to each other, sit in your chair and listen to the teacher, okay? That's not the real world today. The real world is collaboration. It's, it's, and the, you know, the people at Synthesis School, we may have already talked about this, but Synthesis School, you know, which is the SpaceX project, uh, what do they do? They say, well, our normal school, we sit alone, we listen alone, we write alone, we study alone, we take tests alone. In the real world, we talk to each other, we collaborate, we strategize, we, we don't do anything alone. We need to be teaching collaboration and problem solving and, and crisis management and interpersonal skills and EQ. You know, I, I tell a story that, you know, I took my little guy who's now 10 to his, uh, an evaluation for preschool, which I should have known that was a bad thing. And I said, you know, we've noticed some behaviors with, with Will. I'm like, oh, really? I'm like what? He says, well, you know, he's having a hard time sitting on his square. I'm like, I'm out. I, I don't want my four-year-old sitting on a square ever. Like, don't ever do that. And I said, well, what else? And I said, well, you know, he was walking around the classroom, picking up things and looking at them. I said, oh my God, you mean he might have curiosity? That, that's somehow a bad thing in the world now? I'm so out. And if, if that's what people think we're supposed to do to our children, yeah, then we, we, we could be in trouble. You know, I'm laughing because every report card I ever had as a kid up through high school, it was something to the effect of Michael can't sit still. I've never been able to sit still either. Um, so my whole life. Solidarity, brother. Solidarity. I've gotten that feedback too. I think, you know, we're talking about education. If, if I was a single issue voter, you can't be a voter on wealth inequality. If I was a single issue voter, it'd be on education. It's a huge core family value that's been drilled into me ever since I was a kid. I think it's really, really important. It's cropping up in local elections, by the way. I don't yep. know if you paid attention to yep. Democrat versus Republican elections. You know, what, what goes into uh, our our school system and what's being taught in public schools is becoming a big issue in the U.S. right now. I think the cleanest version, the cleanest framework to just look at what's going on is that folks are just waking up and questioning our institutions, whether it's someone at the top who's doing this in a very directed way, whether this is the rollover of policies that began in the 1940s and they were well-intended, but they're just not working anymore. Look, as someone who's, I, I can't speak for my whole generation, but what I will say is when I look around at the institutions, whether it's the media or education or the government or politics, I'm increasingly feeling not super enfranchised. And I think you can look at that as a negative or you can look at it as a positive and say, hey, we're going through a big transition here and we're in the process of building things that will ultimately look better and serve the next generation of people. And one point that I see get brought up on Twitter, Mike, Mike Novogratz tweets about this. We're going to get him in Mike Dow. I don't know if I've told you about Mike Dow, but I'm really pumping this. The Dow of just Mike's, uh, which I've- I know, I know. I'm going to have to change my- At first, I was going to change my name to Dan- because yeah. of Moorhead and Tapiero. Now i got to change my name to Mike. So I guess I'll become Dan Michael. Mike Dow. We'll accept Mark. You, you'll be honorable member of Mike Dow. But he, he, right, tweets, he tweets about 
you know, the age of politicians in general, and you would never elect someone who's 80 years old to be the CEO of a Fortune 500 company. Why on earth would you have them leading our country? They're lovely people, but look, this is a, it's a totally different world and we're going through a transitional point. You, you got to understand the perspective of the people who are going to inherit the world and let us just make our own mistakes and try our own systems. But it's, I think, so to oh, your point. Neuro, neuro, well, first of all, neuroplasticity is fact, right? Mm-hmm. It's just fact. And, you know, we can do everything to try to stop the, the aging, not, you know, I mean, not stop the aging process, but we can try to defend against neuroplasticity and all that stuff. Uh, and I think hanging out with young people is, is one way to do it. But, you know, we've, we've all seen the, the image, you know, Biden is a 35 year old saying it's time to pass the torch. People get out of the way, talking to the old people in government. And now he won't pass the freaking torch. I mean, so it's it's crazy. Right. Pete Buttigieg should be our president right now. Full stop. Right. He was the smartest candidate by far. He would do a great job. He's the most inclusive candidate by far. And it just, the idea that he got tapped on the shoulder, said, oh, no, you don't get to debate Biden because you would destroy him. You don't get to debate Trump because you would destroy him. And so, you know, we'll see what happens. But I, I think you're absolutely right, Michael, that there has to be a generational shift. And, and it is happening. I think so too. But it's happening in the decentralized world. And a decentralized world can be a world built, again, I don't mean a utopia. What I mean is a progressive society where, like DAOs, right? DAOs are pure democracy, pure, right? Not cronyism, right? Not crony capitalism, but true capitalism, true democracy, true um, freedom. And I think we're on the verge of I talk about, right? We had web one, which was basically parallel to the x-axis. Then we had the knee of the curve, web two. And now we're going parabolic. And I don't mean parabolic, like, oh, crazy, let's let our hair on fire. I mean, opportunity that's parabolic. Wealth creation that's parabolic. Improvements to society, which are parabolic, right? Axie infinity is good for humanity. And people are like, oh, you're just so hyperbolic. I know it's good for humanity. It is changing people's lives. Gaming is changing people's lives. Play to earn is changing people's lives. DAOs are making people's lives better. And all of this is standing on the shoulders of giants, right? This is, is Newtonian in the sense of it is the evolution, not revolution, but evolution. Because if we don't, follow the evolutionary path, to your point, Michael, we will have the big R revolution. Because when things get so out of whack that people feel disenfranchised and don't feel they have opportunity, that's when they crack. And that's when the pitchforks come out and that's when bad stuff happens. Totally agree. You know, speaking of uh, Web3 and the future and all that kind of stuff, one story I was going to get your opinion on is I want to start doing this thing like Metaverse Watch, just the amount of public companies that are mentioning the word Metaverse right now yep. is nuts. Yep. It's, you know, okay. So Facebook makes the big pivot. They're meta. Great. Yep. Okay. Yeah. Microsoft comes out and says, we're preparing for a metaverse too. Okay. Yep. Do we need Excel in the metaverse? I'm a big fan of Excel. Not sure if we need it in the metaverse. Nope. You know, now nope. it's Disney. I can see Disney, right? I guess it would be cool to interact with the little mermaid in the live setting. Cool. Now I just <laughs> saw that Dropbox is fully uh, embracing the metaverse. I don't want to say I'm calling bullshit, 
just no, but you are, you're calling it. bullshit, and here's why, right? You're calling bullshit because the metaverse is not a thing, mm-hmm. right? The metaverse is a time. It's the time when the physical and the virtual world start to collide. It's a time, not a thing. The idea of a decentralized, borderless, global community and collective could be owned by a corporation. So antithetical, oxymoronic, it's jumbo shrimp, etc. Yeah, right. And all you got to do is go back to the video of Bill Gates in 1994 Mm-hmm. trying to convince everyone that they need to do the Microsoft intranet. Not this internet thing. That's dangerous. That's where the bad people are and the drug dealers and the terrorists. And you got to be with us where you're safe in our little walled garden. No, dude, we don't, we don't want to be owned. We don't want to be contained in a prison. We want to be in the open air of the community in a collective where all... You're, you're leveraging not your single brain. And, and, my, and, and look, Bill Gates has a big brain. Great. We don't want to leverage just one brain. We want to leverage everyone's brain because the hive mind and collective intelligence. And if people haven't seen um, Rod Collins talk about collective intelligence, you should have him on your show mm-hmm. sometime. He's a trip. But mm-hmm. collective intelligence is what drives all of this. And it's why, you know, I co-opted the Milky Way uh, emoji the other day. I've officially rebranded it the metaverse emoji. So let's have everybody use that and talk about the trust net and we'll be good. I agree. I agree. All right, Mark, we got to end it there. I think, um, yep. but I appreciate the socks. Uh, no, oh, it's time. It's, hey, hey, the roller coaster is real. Uh, be careful out there. Uh, keep stacking, uh, and keep building and, or biddling, biddling, um, but look, it, it is frothy in some areas, uh, do be careful. Um, and you know, the way to manage a portfolio in these times is to have lots of positions in highly volatile assets that are uncorrelated and, and, uh, embrace as much innovation as you possibly can. I think those are really good closing words. Yeah. And just, I think be careful and just try to, as when you feel the euphoria getting to your head, just, just know that that's a warning sign. It's, it's go almost, you got to train yourself to have the opposite instincts of what your body is telling you. And the dopamine is telling you, because when you start to feel invincible and you can't believe how much the number has gone up and you're looking at your account saying, Oh my God, I can't believe this number is real. It's probably not real. So I would just remember that. I'm not, I'm not saying everyone sell and take risk off the table. I'm just saying everyone should be a little bit careful because it really does feel, at least to me, I'm just giving you my opinion that we're in some sort of late stages. But I will say to end on a positive note, Solana, I was blown away with the ecosystem that you guys have built and Toy and Raj. Oh my God, what a credit to both of you. And Multicoin, guys, <laughs> when you're right, you're right. Holy shit, did they crush it. <laughs> and so did crush, you. Crush, crush. Um, All right, we'll end it there. I'll see you same time next week. All right, thanks, man. See you next week.